That song is Square Hammer by Ghost, and I'm going to start using different songs since I record via Anchor. Uh, Spotify, you can pick whatever song on it, so uh, I'm going to probably start using some random songs just to open up the show. But I'm back. That's right. This is the Yenzer Sage. Uh, sorry I had to take an extended break. Um, as some of you know, I'm currently going through a divorce and I needed to take time to focus on my daughter because she was having some difficulties and I needed to step up and be a dad for a while. Um, unfortunately, between that and not having a laptop for a long time and just, I've been, uh, putting in extra hours at work because we lost two people in like the past month one did injury and one quit um you know so i've been just working my butt off at work but needless to say this is episode eight and uh today's episode is going to be on one of my favorite subjects that's right the satanic panic of the 1970s 80s and 90s now to begin this, who is the dungeon master? What class is your character? What level is your character? What is your character's alignment? Has your character ever been cursed? Believe it or not, these are the questions that were given to police by Patricia Poling, the founder of BAD, bothered about Dungeons and Dragons. These questions were meant to be asked if any youth the police needed to question that played Dungeons and Dragons, why you might be asking about now. That This was during the Satanic Panic of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I'm going into depth about D&D's connection to it, but before we get there, we need to understand how the entire moral panic began. Okay. So you have to go back the whole way to the 1960s. And then the evangelicals were showing concerns regarding the hippie movement and some of the different things they were studying. Astrology, Buddhism, other Eastern religions and hallucinogenic drugs like LSD. In 66, the Church of Satan was founded by Anton LaVey, and in 69, he published the Satanic Bible. Around the same time, that same year, uh, the Manson murders happened as well, causing major distrust of hippies. Um, in 71, the book The Exorcist was published by William Peter Blatty, and it became a huge bestseller. Um, 1972, the book Satan Seller by Mark Warnke, a fabricated memoir discredited 20 years later, was published. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Mike Warnke later. Um, in 73, the movie The Exorcist hit theaters and was a blockbuster. Um, and it, I mean, if you look into reports of people that first went to it there were people who fainted people who ran from the theater uh you know all sorts of people were talking about how it was an evil movie um and sometime in the 70s jack chick starts creating his chick tracks that sometimes includes messages concerning devil worship <clears throat> in addition to mike warnke several other supposed ex-satanists started promoting books and making appearances on talk shows to preach about the evils they witnessed. 
Other self-proclaimed former Satanists include John Todd, Herschel Smith, and David Hansen. Along with Warren Creed, they grew up in Southern California and each had a story that made them appeal to the evangelical crowds they preached their stories to. Sprinkle in to this all a heavy dose of serial killer, because you have the antics of Gacy, Bundy, the Hillside Strangler, Son of Sam, add in the Zodiac Killer and Alphabet Killer, and you can see start to see where the whole moral panic came from. They came... You know, then the 80s hit, and from the AIDS scare to pictures of missing kids on milk cartons to the Tylenol murders and the alone incident that would change Halloween forever for everyone, the Halloween candy killer, Ronald Bar Clark O'Brien, the guy who poisoned his son's candy to collect on a life insurance po policy. Thankfully, that asshole was executed in 1984. Thanks a lot, Ron. Now everybody else got to check candy because your selfish ass couldn't get the money the old-fashioned way. Bank robbery. No, I'm not advocating robbing banks. Just suggesting that had Ron robbed a bank, we wouldn't have to check our candy every Halloween. Also in the 80s were the first reports of killer clowns trying to lure children away. And all of that combined had helped fueled the stranger danger movement. And through it, the evangelical movement was gaining more followers and more influence in American politics and media. In 1988, <clears throat> Geraldo Rivera had the highest rated television documentary, Devil Worship, Exposing Satan's Underground. And if you get a chance, go on YouTube and look for this. It's in multiple parts, but every expert on that board or that is sitting on his stage has been discredited in one way or another and just the entire show is so laughable like now looking back at it because none of it was could be validated by any of them um but needless to say in 1980 uh, Michelle Marembers became a bestseller, and it was later completely discredited, but its publication started the satanic ritual abuse craze of the 80s that not only destroyed multiple people's lives, but it also cost taxpayers a lot of money with just with two trials, the McMartin Preschool Trials and the Kern County Abuse Trials. The Kern County case was the first of the two. In 1980, Bakersfield, California, the book Michelle remembers was used as training for social workers. When several children came forward with allegations of molestation by a clandestine local occult sex ring, the social workers remembered the book and used the fictional events to begin feeding children ideas about the abuse they supposedly suffered. Now, to note all of this, two of the girls who came forward were believed to be coached by a grandmother with mental illness. Between 84 and 86, these accusations would send at least 26 people to jail, most with little to no actual evidence to support said claims. Nearly all of these convictions have been overturned. The bigger case, the McMartin Preschool Trial, is the longest, largest, and most expensive trial in California history. When the trial ended, the government had spent $15 million over seven years investigating and prosecuting a case that led to no convictions. During the investigation, a nonprofit group called the Children's Institute investigated the claims of 400 children. The woman who ran this investigation was an unlicensed psychotherapist. She had no psychological or medical training. She did have a welding certificate. 
Her assistants were equally unqualified. Using anatomically correct dolls and highly questionable methods to interrogate the children, they determined that out of the 400 children, 359 of them had been abused. The accusation accounted to 321 counts of child abuse leveled at seven daycare staff by 41 children. After six years, the case fell apart due to lack of any tangible evidence. The original accusing parents in the case was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. The investigative techniques used by the Children's Institute were thoroughly discredited by the psychological community, and one by one, all charges against the daycare staff were dropped due to insufficient evidence. That was via Vox article by Aja Romano. Um... I seriously recommend people look into the two cases on their own, uh, above cases, the Kern County case and the McMartin Preschool. I would recommend the two-part series done by the guys over on last podcast on the left. Uh, they cover the McMartin trial very well. Um, but the trouble for Dungeons & Dragons really started on August 15, 1979. On that day, Dallas, James Dallas Egbert III disappeared from his dorm room. It was believed that he had went into the Searle Tunnels underneath Michigan State University. He was born on October 29, 1962 in Dayton, Ohio, grew up in Hoover Heights, a suburb of Dayton, was considered a child prodigy. He entered Michigan State at 16 as a computer science major. On August 15th, he entered the tunnels under the school and took several quaaludes to intending to commit suicide. When the attempt failed, he went to a friend's house to go into hiding. There are multiple reports that he attended Gen Con uh, 12, I believe. Um, the police looked for Egbert. The news story picked up and was widely circulated. The boy's parents hired a private investigator, William Deere. It was Deere who made the incorrect connection to Egbert's disappearance and his playing Dungeons and Dragons. It was reported that some students had played a live-action version of D&D in the tunnels, but these events had nothing to do with Egbert. The search for him continued for a few weeks, during which time he went to two other houses in East Lansing and eventually caught a bus to New Orleans. There he made a second attempt to kill himself by taking a cyanide pill, which failed. He moved to Morgan City, Louisiana and acquired work as a roustabout. Four days later, he contacted Deer, who traveled to Morgan City to retrieve the boy. Egbert asked Deer to conceal the truth of his story. On September 13, 1979, Deer delivered Egbert to his uncle, Marvin Gross. <clears throat> Egbert died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound on August 16, 1980. Uh, Deer revealed Egbert's story in his novel, The Dungeon Master. It came out that he suffered from depression, loneliness, parental pressure, drug addiction, and difficulty in coming to terms with his homosexuality. I also found in a 1984 Washington Post article that says Egbert made his PCP. William Deere's book said Egbert made drugs that he may have been selling. <clears throat> the next famous case is the one that gave Dungeons & Dragons their very own arch nemesis. Patricia Pooling. Never before has there been a more wretched name of scum and villainy. To explain this lady as accurately as possible, I will be reading from the polling report by Michael A. Stackpole. Patricia Pooling's story really starts with the death of her son, Irving Bink Pooling. On June 9, 1982, 
Bank Pulling shot himself with his mother's gun in the chest and died. This supposedly took place after a curse was placed on his character. Initial media reports did not include all the information regarding Bank's death. The following is directly from the Pulling Report. Alright, so Pulling's techniques, including a newspaper article complete with pictures originally printed in the Daily News son of Sun City, Arizona. The story details the apparent suicide of Sean Hughes in Springerville, Arizona on 19 April 1988. This piece written by Doug Dalmore is a balanced story that gets facts and opinions from fam family, friends, and law enforcement officials. Pulling repeats, reprints it as the centerpiece of the techniques and story ends with Springerville Police Chief Daryl Jenkins saying, if Sean hadn't been involved in role-playing games, he may have thought long and hard before he pulled the trigger. Because the story was published in a community close to Phoenix, the author called Doug Dollimore and agreed to meet with him. When the author showed him Pulling's edition of his story, he glanced at it and stopped when he got to the last page. He told the author that the original last page of the story had run one long column and the last page to be reproduced by Pulling on an 8x5 or 8.5 by 11 sheet paper had been snipped into five parts so it could all fit in. During the cutting, the pieces had been rearranged to provide the sheriff's quote last. As can be seen, the quote as a nasty indictment of gaming, Doug's original version of the story ended with Sean's mother saying, if there's a trial, I want to, I want to be there. I want some answers. This was an ending more in keeping with the whole non-judgmental tone of the piece. Doug also noted that the new son had not been contacted nor had been given consent for the print of piece for the piece to be reprinted with Pat's material. Pat Pulling in her primer reprinted the article from the Washington Post about her son's death. The story ran a full twenty column inches, but Pulling only runs the first fourteen inches of the story. The article notes Bank Pulling had trouble fitting in and became dejected when he was unable to find a campaign manager when he ran for school office. Shortly before his death, he wrote Life is a Joke on a Blackboard in one of his classes, one classmate said. In the section of the article, Pulling did not print the following appeared. He had a lot of problems anyway that weren't associated with the game, said Victoria Rocks Charlie, another classmate of the Pullings in the talented gifted program. Uh, editing newspaper accounts to alter their content is by no means legitimate, and in the case of copyrighted material is illegal. The aforementioned two instances are example of direct editing. More generally, Miss Pulling continues to report cases as being game-related, even after follow-up articles by letters and parents disavow any connection between a crime or suicide and the game. In even the most cursory hunt for details concerning cases, she cites an abundance of contradictory evidence is relatively easy to relatively easy to find. Such a case in the death of her son. The two pictures she gives of her son's death vary more sharply than the cut and uncut versions of the Washington Post article suggest. On Geraldo, Miss Pulling said of her son, we did not understand his death and we, we found, of course, the police found a lot of writings and letters. And the first thing they asked us that night before they removed his bodies, they took my husband aside and they said, and her aside and said, Miss Pulling, are you a devil worshiper? And she said, no, I, you can look through all my house. I don't, I, we're, we're Jewish. And I said, well, we don't have anything like that in my house. My took my husband aside. They thought it was coming from the family. The above account was substantially the same one offered in the devil's web. And that book, 
Pauline notes her son used her gun to kill herself of her feelings at that point. She says, I did not feel shame as I have heard that so many families do when there has been a suicide, but I did feel extreme pain and to some degree anger. Yes, anger. Anger that I had not known something that was going on in my son's mind. Anger and guilt that I must have lacked something that he wouldn't would have allowed me to know that I had a child in trouble. I did not feel that Lee, her husband, and I were to blame in any way for what happened, but I wondered why we hadn't seen that something was very wrong. What would have caused our son to become so disturbed, how to become so subtly, how I had not been paying attention. Her obvious shock, as presented above, is at odds with the comment made by her attorney, Peter W.D. Wright, during the attempt to sue the principal of the high school bank attended. I don't believe that the court can go forward today and rule a plea of sovereign immunity until we have had an opportunity to put before the court evidence of insurance coverage, evidence of what to Dr. Bracey played in this game being played in the school, and what acts did not did he not do perhaps that should have been done to prevent the game from being played because of the knowledge that they have played this youngster undergoes severing emotional distress for taking his life. The apparent confusion over Miss Pulling did or did not know her son's emotional state gets stranger. Though she continues to present herself as being taken completely by surprise to her son's death in bad publications, in the Devil's Web and on national television programs, Miss Pulling herself offers a different picture to law enforcement officials. Uh, during a seminar given at the North Colorado South Wyoming Detective Association on 9th through 12th of September in 1986, and as reported in a seminar synopsis by Larry Jones, the editor of File 18, she said her son had been displaying lancathropic tendencies like running around the bar backyard barking. Furthermore, according to Jones' transcription, uh, Bink pulling growled, screamed, walked on all fours, and clawed the ground. Nineteen rabbits raised by the pullings were found torn to pieces in the last three weeks of his life. Although stray dogs were never seen, a cat was found disemboweled with a knife. The internal torment which led to his death was plain, yet he had, had been normally well-adjusted gifted man only a few months before. Certainly the picture of a young man so tormented is not a pretty sight, nor is it a situation to be taken lightly. Still, is Pat Pulling's obvious deception concerning her son's death to be taken as a responsible action? In her statements meant for civilian consumption, she acts if her son's death caught her utterly, utterly unaware, as if she had no clue about his troubles. Yet in court, she tries to sue a principal for having ignored signs of emotional problems that were present in her son. These very signs she herself describes in hideous detail to law enforcement officials professionals a full two years before appearing on Geraldo and three years before writing her book. This creates a contradiction which leaves us two possible rules for Miss Pulling, neither of which are very attractive. If what she told Geraldo is taken at face value, we have a woman who was truly taken unaware by her son's emotional problems and death. That route, however, also gives us a woman who sued the principal of the school for having missed signs of a disturbance in her son's that she herself missed. On the other hand, we have a woman who saw the signs of her son's emotional disturbance, yet was unable to do anything about it. If this is the truth, then Pat Poling has been lying in bad publications and her media appearances. That's the loss her son of her son was a tragedy, preventable or otherwise, is not a point of debate. Being truthful and honest about his death is. 
Her willingness to portray two different stories concerning his suicide, including the reprinting of edited news accounts of the same, indicates a lack of perspective concerning the incident. The tunnel vision bleeds over into bat, as if only through the destructive uh, destructing of games and now Satanism, and she somehow now makes sense that of her son's final act. Uh, the contradiction surrounding Bank's death is not the only evidence of her lack of perspective. In the back of her book, she lists resources for interested and troubled individuals, starting on page 198. These resources include her own bad organization and continue including explanations of who and what a few organizations listed actually are. One resource that comes without an explanation is Radical Teens for Christ. Radical Teens for Christ is the ministry of Sean R. Sellers and the address of that of which he receives his mail on death row in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary at McAllister. He is a convicted triple murderer who murdered a convenience store clerk and six months later shot his parents to death while they slept. After his conviction, he became born again and is quite anxious to help other troubled children. His good attentions inside. It seems incredible that Miss Pulling would list a diagnosed sociopath as a resource without even a single line of explanation in her book. Okay, and that is all from the Pulling Report. One of the biggest problems with Patricia Pulling's claims of expertise in Dungeons & Dragons is she had none. She was hired to be an expert in three trials in three states. She was a licensed private investigator. The requirements to become at the time which were very easy. She was not qualified to leave criminal investigations. And in her quest to prove this great satanic conspiracy existed, she used unethical and illegal practices to attempt to, to, attempt to get the point across and produce evidence. One of the great things about Mike the pooling report by Michael Stackpool is he goes into great detail about every piece of evidence she produced and shows a few examples of her flawed evidence. Uh, to begin with her son's case, she sued the principal and claimed the principal for not seeing the warning signs that a parent should be more aware of. That's right, folks. If that pesky principal had only warned Miss Pooling about banks howling at the moon, killing 19 rabbits, killing the neighbor's cat, then the suicide could have been avoided. That was the first clue that Pat Pulling had no idea what she was talking about. <clears throat> Joseph Laycock, a professor of religious studies at the University of Texas, reported that after speaking to the person who was the dungeon master in the game Bink Played, the DM confirmed that Bink had only played roughly eight hours of Dungeons & Dragons. This goes to show that, for the, that, for the, that the cause for Bink's death was probably not related to D&D. Oh, and that curse that was placed on Bink's character? The other players in the game all independently stated they had never witnessed any curse be placed on Bink's character. That was just made up as most of Mrs. Pulling's evidence. The Game Manufacturing Association, Gamma, hired Michael A. Stackpole to investigate the claims Miss Pulling was making. First among his findings was that Pulling was claiming games that were no longer being published were top games being played. Her claims of being an expert in role-playing games were completely unfounded and laughable at best. Stackpole goes through the questions the police gave to police to ask kids they thought were under satanic influences, at least the ones who played role-playing games. Fourteen questions that I will be answering to the best of my ability. So the way this is going to work <clears throat> is I'm going to read the question, and then I'm going to answer it how my teenage self would have answered it at the time and then i'm going to answer how stackpole addresses the question um so here we go 
The first question, since it's necessary to have a dungeon master or a game master leader and two or more players, it is important to ask the suspect who is the dungeon master. At this point, you may get double talk about several people being the dungeon master or the suspect may say, may say no one in particular. This is not typically standard. Generally, there is one person who assumes the continuous lead of the dungeon master. Now, my answer. I am the dungeon master. If you have a problem with that, make a save versus dragon breath. Stack pole answer. Actually, sharing the game master's duties is quite, in a group is quite common. For example, one gaming group in Phoenix had half a dozen game masters working within the same world setting in a superhero game. Switching off game master duties, especially between game systems, is very common and gives everyone a chance to experience both sides of the game. This tendency to share game mastering duties is by no means a, just a recent development, but has been become far more prevalent as games matured in the later half of the 1980s. Alright, number two. What is the character of your suspect in the game? My answer. Well, when I'm not the dungeon master? Well, that depends on what the party needs. Sometimes they need my undead killing, sun praying, vampire stomping elf. Or perhaps the party would rather have a twisted dwarven cleric, war cleric to help them fight and heal. Or if the party needs a strong warrior, I have a samurai that I play. While he is lawful, he does enjoy get killing a bit much. Or I play a rogue mage swashbuckler. As you can hear, I wear many hats and I enjoy all of them. Uh, Stackpole's answer. These are the most often known as character classes in gaming. They were very common in early RPGs but most often went by other names like Rogue, Wizard, Shaman, since 1983 or so. Virtually no game has come out with character classes because they are restricted to play. It would be very easy for a player to deny having a thief or magic user or fighter or cleric without lying about it in any way. Alright, number three. Also ask if the character, uh, if the individual, if he ran multiple characters such as a fighter magic user, uh, you mean multi-class characters? Side note, you would think a role-playing game expert would know the difference between a multi-class character and multiple characters. Um, my answer as a teenager would have been, yeah, almost every character I play is multi-class. Uh, and Stackpole's answer, the same comment as apply, above applies, denying knowledge of how to answer this question would not be uncommon among gamers, nor would it be an attempt to hide cult involvement. Uh, number four, each character will have certain abilities or attributes such as strength, wisdom, intelligence, charisma, constitution, dexterity. These abilities are obtained by rolling three six-sided dice. Therefore, the ability score of each category will range from 3 to 18. You should find out what the attributes are for their current game characters. First, my answer. First off, I don't memorize my character sheets. I can give you ballpark numbers for each character and explain why each one is a really good stat and the rest are good to average. I don't understand what telling you my stats are doing unless you're trying to steal my character. Do I need to call the police? Stackpole's answer. Two problems here. Many games have attributes with different names like agility, speed, comeliness, presence, essence, and body. Some game groups, as they find it necessary, make up their own attributes and add them to their games. Any list given to a police officer in the course of an investigation would likely include attributes not listed above. 
Furthermore, only D&D are scores restricted to 3 to 18. In Tunnels and Trolls, for example, scores have no upper limit. In Traveler, they went from 1 to F, and in Shadowrun, they go from 1 to 7. In a game the author finished publishing in July 1989, the Renegade Legion role-playing game, slated for summer 1990 release from FASA, a tribute ran from 2 to 20 initially, under determined by point allocation or the role of 210-sided die. As above, perfectly correct and truthful answers to these questions can be given that do not coincide with polling suggested answers without cult involvement. Number five. How long has the individual been playing this game? Which game? Now this is me answering right now. Which game? Dungeons and Dragons? 36 years. That's right. I'm an old school gamer. Stackpool. There's no clue given on proper answer or the relevance of this question is doubtful. With over 300 role-playing games in existence and players constantly shifting from one another as they get bored or the game mastering duties shift, length of time involved with one game is irrelevant. A long-time gamer could have been playing a particular game for only the month since it appeared on market, for example. Another important point is the popularity of certain games have shifted. Fantasy is no longer as popular as it once was before, and science fiction games really picked up in numbers of players at the time of this writing. This is pull, uh, Stackpole. Many of the sci-fi games feature no magic and no religion, hence clearly lack the diabolical wars mispulling and others find in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, this was written back in the 90s, I do remember. So, um, but yeah, that's Stackpole's answer. Uh, how long has the he-she been playing the particular character that they are currently playing? And my answer is since at least second edition, it's in fifth now, so yeah, quite a while, which makes me an expert. So if you guys have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them. Stackpole. Again, no clue as to the right answer is provided. While it's true that players will become attached to characters, that attachment is no more sinister than a golfer's attachment to a set of clubs. And as with a golfer and a broken club, a dead character is exchanged for another character. Alright, number seven. What is his level of his character characters? Be specific. Um, what level game do you want to play? I got characters at every level. Heck, go back a few editions to three five, and I have godlike characters like some like past level forty. Stackpole. No clue for an answer here, but Miss Pulling must see this as an important question because it appears again as question twelve. There she explains that level reflects how much power a character has. This is only only true in games where they have levels like character levels. Levels have become somewhat passe in more recent games. Um, in a gaming group where role-playing predominates, power level and combat are downplayed because that inter interfere with the role-playing. Imagine improvisational play in which the cast has spent two minutes out of every five rolling dice. It would be decidedly boring as it is in gaming. Role-playing versus role-playing has long been a dictomony in gaming, and the two do not mix well together. Uh... Eight, what is his or her alignment? The following are a list of categories for alignment. Chaotic evil, chaotic good, chaotic neutral, lawful evil, lawful good, lawful evil, wait, lawful evil, lawful good, lawful neutral, uh, neutral evil, neutral good, and neutral. Observations indicate that in the past, the significant number of adolescents will choose an evil alignment. 
The reasons that young players give for choosing the alignment is they feel is the less restrictions on the player characters, therefore they can do more, get by more, and stay alive longer in the game. My answer. My characters are from all different alignments. Do I play evil? Yes, I do. I'm also very good at it. I honestly prefer to play good, as I feel it's too easy to play evil. Stackpole. <clears throat> in reality, most players do whatever they have to do and don't worry about alignment. Alignments are generally viewed with distaste among players and are not featured in many games outside the D&D family. The author once postulated an alignment system per game that coexisted of one axis running from naughty to nice and the other from sloppy to neat, but it never caught on. Alignments are basically silly and MP to play, so are most often ignored. Pulling continues in this section by noting, there was a young boy who was 14 years old in Orlando, Florida, who stated that he was a thief with a lawful good alignment. In reality, thieves are not thought in society as good. Therefore, the confusion over proper attitudes about more qualities become more confused, right and wrong or situational. The author would like to point out that Robin Hood or the Patriots who held the Boston Tea Party could have been tagged with the label of good thieves. 9. Has the individual had any curses placed on his or her character? If yes, what kind and get him to discuss the procedure type of curse? Well, this is my answer. This one time my dwarf got really drunk and banged a sea hag. She gave him some form of Scoggins. What Scoggins? It's when you get modeled by STDs from one person. The more STDs, the higher the plus of Scoggins you have. For example, Tugboat had Scoggins plus 12 for a while. Tugboat just had brain surgery, or rather his second brain operation. Get well soon, Tug. Uh, do I know how to place curses? Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Let's just say I can be very creative. Stackpool. Mr. Mrs. Pulling's concern over curses stemmed from her belief that having a curse placed on her character is what drove her son to kill himself. That belief is pure nonsense and is biased, as will be shown, in a willful ignorance of the circumstances surrounding Bink Pulling's suicide. To suggest that an event in a game could cause otherwise normal child to kill himself means that one would have to accept the idea that a player who goes bankrupt in Monopoly could be driven to kill himself because of it. Because Monopoly is an old standard, no one would ever believe that sort of allegation. But because role-playing games are new and poorly understood, that sort of illogical charge goes unquestioned. Uh, number 10. What are the character, individual characters' names' names? Uh, I'll name my main characters. This is my answer. Azak Sunstar, Clem Brightox, Calloway McCulligan, Victor D'Ombre and Alistair D'Ombre. Those are just the ones I played the longest. Uh, Stockpool's answer. Miss Pulling places a great deal of weight on the name of characters, especially if they can be found in occult works such as the dreaded Necronomicon. She also notes Darren Mulder used the names Demon, spelled D-E-M-U-N, and Sammy Sagar for his characters, uh, which is kind of funny he made a Sammy Hagar knockoff after he confessed to the FBI he signed his confession in those names as well as his own the choice of a name of a character at the very worst is a form of wish fulfillment it is directly analogous to a person making a celestial costume for a masquerade party choosing to go to Zorro for example is not because the person in the costume sees himself as Zorro but because it's fun for a short time to adopt that role more commonly, the choice of a name for a character is the result of a joke in a gaming group. 
or a matter of pure expectancy. In a fast game, the author once named a character Wearing Blender because he was in the kitchen when filling out the character sheet. The similarity between Deller Darren Mulder's Sammy Sagar and the popular musician Sammy Hagar suggests a similar origin there. Another player of the author's acquaintance, because his friends claim he always plays himself, no matter what game he's going on, names many of his characters with some variation of his own name. The significance of a character's name, as can be seen in examples, is highly subjective and can be easily vary from character to character depending on the game and the circumstances in which the character was named. An attempt to generalize about the import of character names is as foolish as attempting to generalize about the nature of the names of cats and dogs. Alright. <clears throat> Number 11. What is his or her racial class in the game? This is only important that the fact many youngsters will try to get over on you when they ask what their character is and they will tell you they are an elf. An elf in the game is a racial class, not a character class. Therefore, most people feel elves are innocuous, innocent creatures and pass by any involvement with negative thoughts. The racial classes are as follows. Uh, dwarven, elven, gnome, half-elven, halfling, half-orc, and human. My answer is I mainly play elven, elven, ah, I mainly play human, elves, and dwarves. I played monsters as player characters. A Minotaur, an Ogre Magi, a Wemic, but I tend to stick to normal races. Stackpole. In other games, there are other racial alien types. The advantages of playing a different race come in added strength for dwarves or night vision for elves. People play other races to escape, which is what the relaxation and hobby are all about. The choice of racial type has little significance in the gaming world, but most pulling clearly sees it the other way, because elves and dwarves and hobbits and the rest are not mentioned in the Bible, they must be creations of the devil. As such, playing a non-human character carries with it all sorts of evil baggage. Alright, number 12. Now, what is his or her level in the game? That's right, folks. The supposed expert actually put in the same question twice and didn't bother to word it any differently. If asked this question as a kid, my reply would have been 58th, just to throw them a monkey wrench. Stackpole says, see question 7. Number 13. What gods or god did the individuals serve in the game? My reply, I've worshipped many different gods in games as my characters. Personally, I'm an atheist. I tend to worship good, good gods as my characters. Stackpole. Because most games do not deal with religion, the answer to this question could be, huh? Very easily, once again, without intention to deceive on the suspect's part. Moreover, there is an equating here with game actions and real actions. To suggest that worshipping an imaginary god in a game is the same as worshipping a real god in life is to suggest that any actor who's donned a Nazi uniform and saluted a portrait of Hitler as a Nazi, because the Bible forbids having false gods before God, even offering a sacrifice in a game to a god, the game master is made up becomes an act of idolatry, and idolatry is of the devil. Therefore, clearly, a game in which this happens is satanic and quite capable of luring a child to the devil. This is sort of crippled logic can be showed to so that most anything is satanic. And as a bonus question, has the person read the Necronomicon? My reply, are you for real? you got to be kidding me. Of course I've read it. How else am I supposed to be able to summon ancient Babylonian demons and go back in time and take on the army of the dead? Stackpole. 
Miss Pulling adds another set of questions to the 13 she asked with the police to use above. The first is, has he read the Necronomicon or is he familiar with it? In her explanation of this general section, she notes this will help determine if the individual has a working knowledge of the occult and if his gaming abilities lean more towards the dark side, which could give cause for reason for bizarre behavior. The phrase, if his gaming abilities lean more towards the dark side, requires close examination. The very phrase and its wording suggests that games somehow are possessed with the power that can be used for good or evil. This is nonsense. Games are not batteries filled with good energy or evil energy. If games were anything more than a form of entertainment, everyone who ever won a game of Monopoly would suddenly become a ma magically becoming Donald Trump, and good risk players would have taken over the world. In that dire question, Miss Pulling mentions the Necronomicon. By context alone, it would have to be assumed the Necronomicon is an occult tome, the rough equal of the Satanic Bible. In fact, the Necronomicon predates the Satanic Bible and has a well, rather well-known history. The Necronomicon is a joke. It was a created volume of forbidden knowledge by Howard Phillips Lovecraft. Lovecraft wrote back in the pulp era and created the Elder Gods, best known of which is Cthulhu or Cthulhu. Uh, the Necronomicon was supposedly written by the mad Arab Abdul Azrahed. Penned in blood and parchment made of human flesh, it contained the history of the Elder Gods and spoke their nature and the things they had done. To read it was to go insane. Lovecraft shared his Cthulhu mythos with other writers of the day, opening up the public domain. Cthulhu and the other gods on the Necronomicon began to show up in stories in the horror genre from a whole host of other writers, professional and amateur alike. Phantom copies of the book would mysteriously appear listed in library databases, though it always seemed to be checked out to a Mr. A. Alzerat. In short, the Necronomicon became an inside joke shared by fantasy and horror fans. For the first half of the century of its life, it did not see print because no text of it existed. It was a fantasy and probably would have remained so if several different people had not decided a fastball could be actually made by bringing out this forbidden tome. So in the late 70s, the first of at least five different versions of the books appeared on the market. Most are gibberish, and at least one version repeats its romanized Arabic text every 10 pages, the author having assumed no one would ever try to wade through more than 10 pages. Another book appeared with black leather binding and gold stamped cover. It retailed for 50 bucks in 1978, and now goes for well over 100. Though now ex extent, the Necronomicon has the same veracity as Gulliver's Travels or Dante's Inferno. Citing it as an occult book would be akin to citing Rova's Jaffe's novels Mazes and Monsters as an investigative book. The fact that NCTV's Dr. Thomas Radke judged that in one of his press releases does not make the book an actual factual book. Uh, a moment's research into the Necronomicon revealed it's less than Blue Ribbon pedigree, but Miss Pulling has not apparently put that much studying into this tome. Stackpole explains another one of Pulling's fabrications. In January of 1988, Pat Pulling stated in a Star Weekly article that she conservatively estimates that about 8% of the Richmond area, Virginia area population, is involved in satanic worship at some level. A Richmond News Leader article notes that this would be roughly 56,000 people. 
more than a number of United Methodists in the Richmond area, and nearly the entire population of Hanover County. In an interview for that story, Miss Pulling redefined satanic worship as a cult and said it included dabbling in witchcraft and such new age activities as channeling. She went on to say that she had gotten the 8% figure by estimating 4% of the area's teenagers and 4% of the adults were involved. She added the figures. The reporter informed her that mathematically that amounted to 4% of the total population, but she said it didn't matter because 8%, roughly one out of every dozen citizens, was probably conservative anyway. She went on to add that some of the bodies from unexplained homicides across the country may actually be satanic sacrifice victims. They certainly have found a number of unsolved murders with no motive, haven't they? An earlier Richmond Times dispatch noted, Authorities had estimated that more than 30,000 people nationwide, including doctors, lawyers, and other professionals, pr practice alternative religion like Satanism and other cults. In the same article one predates that both the 8% solution and its defense. Pulling is quoted as saying, to me, this is just like any other fanatic type of group. They're not larger numbers, but they create a lot of problems. Barely seven months earlier, another Richmond Times article about pulling estimated number seven of Satanists at 300,000 nationally. It was noted they come from as many as four generations of Satanists and from feeding stream of teenagers recruited with promise of easy drugs and sex and the ultimate in revolt against parental control. We found that the people in Satanism can be found in all levels of society, says Pat Pulling, across the country, doctors, lawyers, clergymen, even police are involved in this. In a particular story, she makes her eight, famous 8% remark, but it goes unquestioned and uncorrected. Miss Pulling gives us a number of conflicting images in these two stories. First, we have 300,000 Satanists involved in all levels of society, including police lawyers and even members of the clergy. Seven months pass and they've all re been reduced to a tenth of their former number, but they still comprise 8% of the Richmond area population. At this point, Ms. Pulling calls them not large in number, later yet defines her error in estimating 56,000 people in Richmond as being Satanist by knowing her estimate was conservative. The important thing to note here is that her statistics and comments tend to vary wildly. If there was a distinct threat one would, could be dealt in a clear manner, these statistics would support her theories. The fluctuation in her numbers and the way the level of satanic threat seems to vary from interview to interview suggests that either an impotent conspiracy that is collapsing or a phantom conspiracy that can never supply reliable statistics because it doesn't exist. One other thing must be examined concerning conspiracy theory, mispulling flogs. One notes that police have many of murders nationwide with no motives and suggests that many of them could be victims of satanic crime. In doing this, she's applying negative energy, end of negative evidence to show that vast conspiracy exists and murders people. This obviously is a fallacious argument. That same negative evidence can be used to prove that mole men from beneath the earth of the sur surface of the earth have perpetrated these murders. In fact, that the mole men have left no evidence behind proves how good they are at remaining hidden. That no sewer or road building projects have ever cut across their tunnels proves that politicians and engineers and other professionals are in league with the moment, just as obviously anyone who denies the moment exists is either in league with them or is a fool who cannot see the end coming. No one would deny that Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, went on a murdering spree in Los Angeles. 
Similarly, no one would deny that Ramirez claimed he was sacrificing people to Satan. No one would deny that graffiti with pentagrams shows up on walls and bridges all over the U.S. Sean Sellers clearly claims his mirrors were performed in the name of Satan. However, these isolated acts of individuals deranged or being rebelliously committing acts of vandalism does not constitute an invisible conspiracy. Once that line is crossed, once an individual starts linking up desperate actions and events into a conspiratorial web, any subsequent action can be made to fit in the web with incredible ease. Individuals who believe that a cartel of international bankers are working to form a one-world government can take something as wonderful as the collapse of the Warsaw Pact and turn it into a sinister portent of things to come. There is no end to it, just like there is no logic to it or no evidence to support it. Here is Pulling's profile for the police. Um, the who, what, when, and how of teen Satanism. Alright, the who. This is, Remember, this is a profile that she used to give the police. Number one, adolescents from all walks of life. Number two, many from middle to upper class families. Three, intelligent. Now, the next three don't have any numbers next to them, but they're over and underachievers, creative, curious, some are rebellious, then there's three more. Some have low self-esteem and are loners. Some children have been abused physically or sexually. And when does this occur? It appears the ages are most vulnerable are 11 to 17. Where? Public places such as rock concerts, game clubs, and communities or at school, private parties at a friend's home. I've never had anyone at a rock concert or a game club in a community or at school or even at a private party ever ask me if I wanted to be a Satanist. Never. Never. How? Through black heavy metal music. Number two, through fantasy role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons. Three, obsession with movies, videos, which have occult themes. Four, collecting and reading, researching occult books. Now, you also have to remember, when we say occult, that includes anything Bigfoot-related, anything like ghosts, UFOs, paranormal stuff, any of that, that to them at that time was all kind of lumped in. If you had that interest, you were probably satanic. Um, I said collecting and researching occult books. Uh, involvement with satanic cults through recruitment. Some are born into families who practice satanic cult rituals. Two basic principles apply here. The law of attraction and the law of in invitation. What can be expected? Obsession with occult entertainment. Minor to major behavior disorders. Committing crimes and status offenses such as running away. Grave robbing, such as bones, breaking and entering to steal religious artifacts, or sometimes stealing small items to prove loyalty to the group, uh, de uh, defacing public property or public or private property, using satanic graffiti or related graffiti, uh, threatening to kill self or others. Self mutilation is very common. Aggression directed towards family, teachers, and authority figures. Contempt for organized religion. Supremacist attitudes. Kidnapping or assistance in kidnapping, murder, suicide packs among members of the group. What can we do? Document all information relating to occult involvement, even if it does not appear relevant at the time. Keep an open mind. Stay objective. 
<clears throat> never assume that the individual is acting alone until all the under information surrounding the case and individual has been fully investigated. If the individual is involved in satanic activity, he or she will deny a great deal to protect all the members of the group as well as the satanic philosophy. Have a team approach, work with a therapist, a clergyman, and other helping professionals. Educate the community so that potential tragedies might be avoided. This profile, which is distributed by BAD to police departments, for their use in interrogating suspects in crime, clearly has some flaws. Even a casual glance at the first three sections will show that virtually any child from the ages of 11 to 17 is a potential candidate for seduction into Satanism. Furthermore, this seduction will take place at times when the parent is least likely to be present. In short, if you have a reasonably intelligent child from a good background and he is out of your sight, he is open to recruitment by Satanists. This is paint nonsense, and nowhere does pulling off for evidence to indicate a cult recruitment of any sort is a common occurrence. Obviously, in Miss Pulling's view, no child is safe at any time. Once this profile has been used to help parents and others identify potential problem children, Pat reveals the prosecutional mentality Bad encourages in investigators. The following is another example of Pulling's deceptive practices from the Escapist website. Um, do the Dungeons and Dragons books really mention rape as an activity that would pay, the characters would partake in frequently? No, they do not. This little wonderful rumor comes out of a two out of text context statements in the original Dungeon Master's Guide. The first reads as follows: The less intelligent non-humans will serve for from 10% to 60% less cost, but these evil creatures will certainly expect to loot, pillage, and rape freely at every chance and kill and possibly eat captives. First edition's Dungeon Master's Guide, page 31, second column, first paragraph. Obviously this is something that has been taken out of context. For starters, the statement comes from a section on non-humanoids, orcs, goblins and such, as hired troops. It does not apply the motives and desires of player characters. Secondly, the point being made here is not that you should include graphic scenes of rape or murder in your games but that relying on evil creatures to do your work for you can have some terrible outcomes. Note how this sentence mentions that evil creatures loot, pillage, rape. If anything, the statement makes it clear that crimes such as looting, theft, and rape are evil activities, and that's a good thing to make clear to D&D players, isn't it? A second statement is later found in the book in a description of a city encounter. Um, uses random encounter tables... D&D uses random encounter tables to simulate chance meetings with other characters or monsters. Uh, excuse me. One of these tables is for encounters in a city town. And lists the people you can meet there. Shopkeepers, city guards, citizens, and so on. One of the entries in that table is Good Wife. And the description reads as below. Alright. Let me... Now, to put in her book, uh, The Devil's Web, Pulling edited down this little statement out of this uh, first edition DM's guide, page 192, first column, fifth paragraph. Um, so, here's the complete paragraph with the words she chose to delete in red.
I'm going to read the essentially the words that she used that are in black. Uh, good wife encounters are with single women. Any seeming party of assault, rape, theft, and murder. Alright, now here is the actual whole paragraph. Good wife encounters are with single women, often indistinguishable from any other type of female, such as magic user, harlot, etc. Any offensive treatment or seeming threat will likely be likely to cause the woman to scream for help, accusing the offending party of any number of crimes, i.e. assault, rape, theft, or murder. 20% of good wives know interesting gossip. She edited it from 60 words to 15 words without proper notation and put on a spin on that to make it something more sinister. Rape is a serious issue and certainly nothing that should ever be made light of in anything like a role-playing game. That And the quotes taken directly from the DM's Guide show it's considered a serious issue in its pages as well. It's depicted as both an evil act and something that can bring serious repercussions. Um, and for the record, those statements only appear in the first edition of the DM's Guide. All subsequent editions since 1990 do not include any information regarding that issue. Um, and another accusation that was made um, towards D&D was, did the original offers of D&D contract a real-world occultist to make the world or make the game more realistic? Um, Alright. This claim has been made by a former Satanist termed Christian William Schnoblin who allegedly lived in Milwaukee during the 70s and claims he was contacted by employees of TSR to reality check their work. Here's a direct quote from his article, Straight Talk on D&D, the emphasis on Bold on his own. Uh, oh, the emphasis in Bold is, is in his own. Oh, excuse me. I was a witch high priest, Alexandrian tradition, during the period of 1973 to 1984. During some of that period, 76 to 80, I was also involved in hardcore Satanism. We studied and practiced and trained more than 175 people in our craft. Our coven was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just a short drive away from the world headquarters of TSR, the company which makes D&D in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. In the late 1970s, a couple of game writers actually came to my wife and I as prominent sorcerers in the community. They wanted to make certain the rituals were authentic. That's the part that was emboldened. For the most part, they are. These two guys sat in our living room and took copious notes from us how to make sure the rituals were truly right from the book, meaning they actually came from magic remorse or workbooks. They seemed satisfied with what they got and left us thankfully. Now, if you ever get a chance, look into this guy's history, William Schnabelin. He's an ex-high priest, ex-Satanist, ex-Mormon, ex-Mason, ex-Catholic, ex-Vampire. Damn, that's a lot of exes. And, I mean, if you look at him, he doesn't look like any of that. I mean, maybe an ex-Catholic, maybe. Maybe an ex-Mormon. You know, I don't know. He's an ex-something or other. But it, it sounds convincing, but overlooks the fact that by the late 70s, D&D was already published and on shelves for several years, which made it a little late to do any kind of research for it. 
the advanced version of the game saw publication in 79, but very little changed the way spells were listed. The rules surrounding each spell were expanded a little, and variables were adjusted to accommodate the new rule system, but none of this could be considered reality-checking the game against real-world occultism. There is also another inconsistency in the story. If the alleged rituals in the rule books are authentic for the most part, then why did these two men need to take copious notes from Schnabel and his wife? D&D spells, as been asserted here, are not rituals, or even anything used by players. Fireballs and ma magic missiles are very common magical effects in D&D, are not the sort of things that real high priests or Satanists can cast, or would be claimed to be able to cast. Shinobin may disagree with this premise, but until he can actually summon a ball of fire from his fingertips, his claim doesn't hold much weight. No claims or descriptions of these two field-testing game designers are given, so we can't even be sure if they were actual representatives of TSR, or two guys pulling a practical joke in the high witch priest in Milwaukee, or a simple figment of his imagination. In my quest to answer this claim, I went straight to the horse's mouth, Gary Gyax, co-creator of the original Dungeons & Dragons, and asked him if this is any truth to this story. The simple answer, pure rubbish, that's assertion. Still, this would not be enough for some people. It's purely one word against another, and Shovelin's mentality, all cultists turn down to lie, especially, except for reformed ones, of course. So the only thing we have to go in is his veracity, which other claims he has made, and how truthful are they? Well, for that I refer to you his take on Cthulhu. Contrary to the ramblings of D&D defenders like Michael Stackpole, and this comes from uh, his, I guess, article he posted called Should a Christian Play Dungeons and Dragons? Contrary to the ramblings of D&D defenders like Michael Stackpole, the Necronomicon and Cthulhu mythos are quite real. Yes, you heard it here first, friends. There is a massive octopoid aberration living in a non-elucid city beneath the ocean, awaiting the alignment of the stars to awaken and destroy us all. Someone also claims to be a former vampire and tells his story in the film Interview with the Next Vampire. During his time as a Satanist vampire, he built a special trapezoidal vampire coffin designed to attract vampiric dark energy, dark demonic energy, to help the occupant achieve demonic resurrection. The same sort of coffin in which Pope John Paul II was laid to rest. Um, in the independent gaming documentary Uber Goober, he tells the story of how opposing warlocks would materialize in his home, attacking him and his wife via astral projection, and how a good friend of his was so adept that he could project himself into movie theaters to skip the emission fee. So who do we believe? A guy who makes the game about imaginary monsters, or a vampire coffin designer who actually believes in imaginary monsters and believes that he was one once upon a time? I'll let you decide that for yourself. Um, and that, that was all from the Escapist website. Yeah. Um, there was also one other article I found on there. The only other false statement I found was that the game venerates Adolf Hitler. In the first edition under the description of charisma, some examples were given to charismatic people. Again, from the Escapist website. No, they do not. This is another rumor started from a misquoted passage in the original DM's Guide. The claim was made in a 1987 pamphlet called A Christian Response to Dungeons & Dragons by Peter Lighthart and George Grant. 
and it appeared in many other places as well. The Dungeon Master's Guide lists Hitler among those historical characters who exhibited true D&D charisma. A Christian response to D&D, page 5, fourth paragraph. Here's the statement they may have drawn this claim from. Many persons have the sad misconception that charisma is merely physical attractiveness. This error is obvious to any person who considers the subject with perceptiveness. Charisma is a combination of physical appearance, persuasiveness, and personal magnetism. True charisma becomes apparent when becomes evident when one considers such historic examples of Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Adolf Hitler. Obviously, these characters did not have an 18 score in physical beauty. First edition, Dean, Dean M's Guide, page 15, second column, eighth paragraph. That's where it was a discussion on the difference between physical attractiveness and overall charisma. Um, it was viewed, it was, Hitler was being used as an example of someone who had much in the way of personal magnetism, but little in the way of physical attractiveness. Attempting to make any other interpretation is taking the material out of context. Many other false claims that Leadhart and Grant make in the Christian response pamphlet is this one. Not only are gods, devils, and demons treated as fantasy, Jesus himself is included as one of the deities. Note carefully the logic here. It's just a game. The monsters aren't real. The magical powers aren't real. The gods aren't real. Jesus is one of the gods. Christ is reduced to the level of fanatic monsters, halflings, dwarves, and elves. We give this no less label than blasphemy. And it would be blasphemy if it were true. Jesus Christ does not appear in any editions of Dungeons and Dragons book as a deity, character, monster, or otherwise. Some would probably consider that a sign of corruption itself, creating a very handy no-win situation for the game. The statement above is not right falsehood. Note carefully logic here. If we really want to get people fired up against the game, make up a story how blasphemous it is and how it venerates Hitler. It won't count as a sin if we do it in the name of God. It should be noted, however, that the above example from the DMs God only appears in the first edition. All subsequent editions since 90 do not include it at, night at all. The 87 pamphlet, however, has been digitized and still distributed freely to Christian homeschoolers and educators to this day. One of the biggest problems with the Satanic Panel was the fact that the Satanic label was applied to almost everything. And I, I definitely would recommend to everybody to, you know, take time, go online, and just look up, you know, uh, Terror in the Toy Box was one of the books. Um, I can't remember the other one that guy did, but... Uh, like everything from like Rainbow Bright to My Little Pony to He-Man to Transformers to uh, all sorts of other 80s toys. I mean, almost everything to almost every heavy metal band of the era. Um, even situations that had nothing to do with Satanism were mislabeled as Satanic. Much like the activities of the Kansas City butcher Bob Berdella. While Berdella was a very disturbed person and a sadist, he was far from a Satanist. The 90s were mainly filled with memories of the past decade, and most people coming to terms with that no Satanic cabal had ever been found. 
Patricia Pooling died on September 18, 1997, of lung cancer. She left bad after the Pooling Report was published by Michael Stackpool in 1990. Um, I actually had made up a part joke that she failed her savings to reverse lung cancer. Uh, in 1991, three different agencies investigated to see if a link between suicide and fantasy role-playing games and the American Association of Suicidology. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Health and Welfare Canada all concluded there is no link between games and suicide. BAD ceased to exist when Patricia Pooling passed away. As of late as late as of 2017, Pat Robertson called Dungeon & Dragons Satanic. Some may ask, why does any of this matter? Well, with the rise of the Q movement and new accusations of widespread Satanism, it's only a matter of time before the angelicals start pointing fingers at things they envision to be Satanic. And it's always good to be well informed on past situations, and understanding them can help us avoid the same thing in the future. And with that, folks... That covers the satanic panic of the 1980s or 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I can, I've had quite a few experiences with different situations in those, especially in the 90s. I had to have multiple conversations with parents because their kids started gaming with the groups we were playing with, and they would be concerned because they heard the game was, you know, this occult. Uh, system that you know drew kids in and turned them into little satanists and all sorts of crazy stuff and you know my favorite thing to the people that like oh well it teaches people to cast real spells i'll tell you what for anybody who believes that you give me your address and i will cast meteor swarm and then you tell me whenever the meteor swarm hits your house so i know how long my spell took to take effect because i'm sure that I'll be waiting a long, long time, you know, before anything happens, if it ever happens. And I mean, if it did, it, that's just pure chance because we all know that the spells in D&D don't have any type of actual description on how to cast them, per se. They just tell you that they're, they have a verbal component, a somatic component, which is like movement of the hands, and I material component which is like you know for some spells you might have to have a diamond or you might have to have you know uh, a henchman's left foot you know you never know but all those things are predominantly you know falsehoods that have just been perpetuated for a long time and with that I'm going to end this episode uh, the next episode is going to be on the origins of where, like, where did Gaiax get elves and dwarves and different, all sorts of different things. I found a, a site that talks about a bunch of them. Um, where, like, where, where did they get the idea for the alignment system? Where did he get the idea for the uh, magic system? You know, uh, I'm, I'm going to go over a bunch of that. Um, and I'm going to keep you know trying to come up with different content i'm going to start you know having people pick what they want topics for me to cover you know uh i'm going to put out that i'm more than willing to do like an episode just on one class at a time 
like I could do an episode about fighters, I could do an episode about rogues, I could do an episode about, you know, clerics, one about ra mages, you know, one about rangers, one about barbarians, one about paladins, you know, and we could even go into, like, you know, classes that um, don't normally exist in, you know, stuff that's like uh, paths now. Like samurai in third edition, that was a class. In fifth, it's a, a path. Um, you know, I I'm more than willing to go over like stuff like that. Uh, I'm also thinking about like doing episodes specifically on one type of monster at a time. You know, describing them. Uh, going over different you know aspects of these monsters. Um, histories, you know, as much as I can find out about each one, I'll be more than willing to do that. Uh, just trying to come up with some different ideas for topics, because uh, now that I'm doing this again, you know, I want to be able to put out content every week, and uh, at least having an idea a week ahead of time gives me some idea, you know, I'd prefer to have some type of pre-planned schedule of like, you know, what topics I'm going to be covering what week. Um, and then I would like to also, you know, start putting out more to have people vote the topics, you know, so, to, so to speak, uh, you know, I'll have voting by a certain day and then that leaves me a few days to do the research and be prepared, you know, um, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, log off. This is probably the longest episode I've done. And with that, I'd like to say thank you all for listening. Uh, and everybody have a good day. And just let the dice roll as they may. And everybody game on. Later.